in the meditations, in the sitting, the standing, the walking meditation, in this time when I will offer this talk, and in the period of inquiry and dialogue this afternoon, feel that together we go to one of the heartbeats of the spiritual journey, one of the taproots of transformation. We take ourselves to that landscape upon which unfolds our relationship with the human bodies that we each in our own way populate. And so critical is this relationship, if we speak dualistically for a moment, that it can either be a relationship that not only serves the flowering, the transformation that we all yearn for, that the relationship itself could be the vehicle for transformation, for liberation, for awakening. And on the other hand, the relationship that plays out on this landscape, one where that very relationship is the impediment, is the obstacle for the awakening, for the freedom that is our birthright and that we all yearn for. So that critical and exciting is the adventure I feel today that we share together. And so I invite you to join me with as much candor and frankness and much wholeheartedness as we bring ourselves to this question of what it means to live in a human body in a way that is in service to what we value most in this life that we share. Some time ago, I was having lunch with a friend, a neighbor. And uh, she's a woman who really loves me a lot, but is a little weary of all this meditation stuff. And we were having a cup of tea, and she said to me, you know, she said, my son-in-law uh, uh, was in Nepal hiking, and he came back with this gift, and this gift gives me the heebie-jeebies. And she said, I'd love to give it to you. So I said, well, what is it? So she scurried off to the closet and came back with this tanka that I've hung up over there, Tibetan tanka, and she kind of handed it to me like this and, and was just so happy to get it out of, out of uh, 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 her space. And this particular tanka it sort of took my breath away. It's a very, very beautiful... Uh, um, piece of work, it's, it's a lot of um, gold leaf in it and because it's small I'm going to leave it up there and you're very welcome to reflect on it and look at it during the course of the day. But it's, it's got a lot of gold leaf, the, the definition is really fine. If you go just to the expressions on the faces, they really are beautiful, very revealing. And this is not an uncommon tanker because it symbolizes in great and significant measure uh, a major body of Buddhist cosmology. And I'd like to just introduce you 
to this particular tanka and perhaps as you adventure over the years you'll come upon others and uh, perhaps they may have more meaning as they do for me now that I've gone on my particular adventure with this one. And there's this deity, perhaps you may see her or him, a rather fearsome looking uh, creature or woman guy holding this wheel. And the wheel that is being held there is the wheel of life, the samsara as it is called in the classical languages of Asia. And this wheel of life, this cycle of birth and death is being held by the custodian, if you will, or the god or goddess of the law. And the, the fearsomeness is that the law is as it is. There's this wonderful line in the Course of Miracles, the opening line that says, only the truth is true. And the fierceness of that statement is embodied in the fierceness of this being holding in his feet and in his or her hands this wheel of samsara as it turns, this wheel of life and death, so ordered. And on the perimeter, on the, the outside, the rim of the wheel is uh, in, symbolized with 12 different images. Uh, what are called the chains of this cycle of co-arising or interdependent origination which is the Buddha in his enlightenment experience saw so clearly for the first time what it is, what the factors are that uh, the ingredients that give rise to this the circle, the cycling of, 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 of rebirth from one lifetime to another, how we are born again into uh, uh, um, different say mental states in our lives, how we born perhaps again into relationships, we replicate relationships again, there's that kind of rebirth or we, rebo we reborn moment to moment into a sense of ourselves. We identify with a thought or a sound or a smell or an event in our body and we reborn again with that identification. And this, these 12 chains of interdependent origination he not only understood but he had insight in, into the way to break these chains forever and in that respect his understanding was triumphant and his teachings were really uh, a great blessing because he not only understood the law but he understood how it is that in the living of these human lives we can bring ourselves to the experience of life in a way that frees us from the cycles of suffering that hurt us so much and that's another whole talk, probably a week's talk on, on co-arising, very complicated in the middle there of the wheel are the six realms of existence and they are worth checking out over the course of today. The, the factors of mind in the Buddhist teaching that create suffering are the factors of greed, hatred and delusion. They are almost considered like the hub of the wheel that keeps this wheel turning. And so in one respect one might say that this whole journey of transformation, the whole journey of awakening is about coming to understand how these forces arise in our life 
and exploring possibilities of responding to them in a way that is transformative where we're not reactive, where we're not in the grip of these forces of the mind but where our relationship with uh, the greed, hatred and delusion as it arises transforms us and the bottom on the left is the realm of the hungry ghosts and if the factor of mind is greed, is, is very strong it's said that we're born into the realm of the hungry ghosts and the hungry ghosts are these fellows who have huge big heads tiny little necks like, like needles and then big bellies and so they're always hungry and they can't get food down to their bellies and so if the you know and so perhaps you know we can look at these in terms of you know cosmology we might even say do these realms actually exist and it's an interesting question because the, in the Tibetan tradition they say that what we see in a particular lifetime is what our karmic vision allows us so do we have a breadth and capacity of mind to suspend disbelief or do we say that's a lot of hocus pocus and I don't believe it or could we take it metaphorically and say I know in the experience of my life how it is to be a hungry ghost how it is when there's so much wanting and desire and craving and feeling like it can never be satisfied it's like we've got big bellies and tiny little throats it doesn't really matter if they exist or not the question is how do they feel? how do they touch us? how do they resonate? how do they echo within us? you can go to the hell realm which is the one at the bottom which is this, you'll see there's a lot of fire and flame it's this very hot place and if the force of anger is strong it said that that's where we end up and the only person in all of those images there who looks really unhappy is the fellow who's about to go into the flames of hell you know and how does it feel when we're angry? how does it feel when we're in the grip of rage? real fiery perhaps for you as it is for me it's real hot energy the flames of anger and then coming up on the right hand side the next is the animal realm the, the animals and the realm of the animals is the realm where there's a lot of confusion and uh, delusion in the mind it's said that we end up in the realm of the animals not because you want to malign uh, the creatures of the animal realm but what distinguishes us from the animals is that we as human beings have the blessing of the possibility of transforming consciousness that we can truly change our mind heart in a way that the animal kingdom is apparently unable to do so to that extent being born human is considered a higher birth than a birth into the animal realm then we go to the top and the one right on the top is the heaven realm the realm of the gods and the goddesses and if you check it out you'll see the deity of the realm of the gods is this woman strumming a guitar and so and there's a lot of clouds in the heaven realms and so you'll see there that the beings don't have bodies in the human realm they have bodies of light very very happy place there's all this beautiful music the celestial music in the heaven realms it's a place of 
changeless beauty. It's a place of great sensual delights. It's said that there is no suffering there whatsoever. There's a kind of ecstasy in these realms. And if we look, say, in our world, if we project this this metaphor, this symbol of the heaven realms, we may image something like the beaches of Waikiki or 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 California where these young, very beautiful young women and men, the goddesses and the Adonises on their surfboards, tanned, blonde, dark haired, blue, black, green eyes, gorgeous bodies, where there's no question of facing themselves in in those realms. In they might be even if they somewhat new age, they might be all be high on meditation and body work and stretched out and limber on yoga as well. And in, in these heaven realms as we might project them, the, this is the realm where we don't confront ourselves. Where there's no extending of ourselves inwardly. And it's a realm where we avoid the painful at whatever cost. It's not a realm where we're inquisitive, where we look deeper, where we're kind of anesthetized and superficial. And believe it or not, this realm is also considered really um, not very desirable. Because it's a realm where things are so good that we're not challenged to go deeper, to question, to develop ourselves. And if you reflect, what brought us all here today is probably some degree of suffering, some degree of discontent in our lives. If our lives were perfectly wonderful, if everything was going exactly as we would like it to be, we probably would not be here. And so rebirth in the heaven realms is not considered such a good thing because it doesn't afford us the opportunity of transforming the heart and allowing the mind to flower. And we come down there to the realm of the demigods. And if the force of jealousy and envy is very alive, it's said that we go over there to the, to the realm of the demigods. And there, this is the, the, the realm of envy and competitiveness, where it seems that people are very happy. They're very powerful. They, they, um, this is the, the realm, perhaps, of Wall Street. and and Washington, you know, the political realm, to, to the gamblers of this world where there's a veneer of a lot of success and, and, uh, and um, triumph. It's probably a realm that's significantly testosterone driven because it's very competitiveness and there's a lot of one-upmanship. But it's all foundation on sands that are shifting, the sands of vindictiveness and manipulation. And so to that extent, of course, that particular realm is not considered a satisfactory place to hang out for too long. And then it leaves the last one, the upper on the left, which is the human realm. And you'll see if you check that one out, that those beings are grounded. They're on the ground. There are no clouds in the human realm. There are houses with roofs on, and they're very much on the ground. And the human realm is considered of all the six possible realms of rebirth, this cycle of samsara, that the human realm is the real triumph, that it is such a precious opportunity that we have as human beings to be born into a human body. 
It said that the chances of us being born into a human body are, I wouldn't say, is it greater or smaller? It's smaller or greater than the likelihood of a turtle coming up once every 100,000 years in one of the seven great oceans of the world and for its head to come up in the middle of a wooden ring floating, bobbing on the waves of the seven oceans that when its head comes up every 100,000 years the chances of its head coming up in the middle of that ring are greater than the chances are of being born as a human being in a human body. And so, so many of the Buddhist teachings uh, um, point us towards our relationship with the human body so that the course of this life is lived in a way that maximizes every possibility and potential for us so that there can be the transformation in this lifetime that is our birthright and that we not be hoodwinked by the forces of mind that might tempt us into these other realms no matter how beautiful they may look. And in the experience of the Buddha, he, he was born into the ruling royal family of the Shakyan tribe in North India, very affluent and abundant life. And then after he began his journey, he went through six years of severe austerities during which he really uh, persecuted his body. It was a prevailing paradigm of that time that the way to God, the way to freedom was in an in incredible denial of the body, almost a disfiguration of the body to, to transcend it. And it said that he went through all of these practices trying to, to separate the spirit from the body and almost killed himself. He starved himself and hung himself over branches from uh, over fires on branches and ate just a grain of rice a day or the sesame seed it said and in the end he realized that that too wasn't the way and he was offered one day a bowl of hot milk with rice in and he took it and he ate it and felt so renewed and so invigorated by the meal and fortified that he sat down and resolved that he would not arise until he understood the cause of suffering that he felt was informing so much of his life and the lives of the women and men around him. And it was fortunate for him that that was his big night and over the course of that night the understanding including the ones we see symbolized here uh, were revealed to him and he saw that the way is always the middle way between indulgence and deprivation there's a middle way and so in this talk and, and in what I offer today it points again and again to the degree of self-responsibility that I think is offered, a vision of self-responsibility that includes us finding each in our own way that particular middle way 
towards balance and transformation. So what I'd like to do is explore together different facets of how it is that we might um, find our own particular way embodied to the flowering, to the birthright that is, is an ever-present possibility for all of us. There is this story in, in India that I love a lot about the six senses of the body it came together for a conference. And so the eye was there and the ear and the nose and the tongue and the skin which is considered another sense organ and the mind. And of course, you know, when beings come together for a meeting, then someone has to be the chairman. So they were trying to decide who was going to be the chairman of this particular meeting. And so the eye like conjured up just most beautiful images and said, you know, I think I should be the chairman. And then the ear created a gorgeous sound, you know. And then of course there was this adorable fragrance and this beautiful taste on the tongue and these sensuous evocative uh, sensations in the body and beautiful thoughts and images and visions of the mind and they were all squabbling amongst themselves who was going to be chairman there was a little knock on the door and opened the door and there was the breath and the breath said well would you consider me as a teacher this is an old Sanskrit story and they said the breath you know forget about the breath and they went on with their deliberations and the breath sort of dejected walked off apparently and all the sensations became mediocre and the sounds became insipid you know and the visions were sort of wishy-washy and they realized that the breath the body was integral and it could not be left out and so apparently in all humility the six senses walked through the door and went to the breath and said you can be the chairman of the board and brought the chairman back and that's why this experience and I love that story because it points to I think in a very simple way why it is that in so many traditions mindfulness of the breathing mindfulness of the body is really the fundamental practice the Anapanasati Sutta of the Buddha is probably the most inclusive teaching of the whole way includes all of this and others and ana is uh, translated often as life energy as it comes in and apana is waste as it is expelled and so this anapanasati sutta is all about the comings and goings in the body and an awareness of the, of the comings and goings and the real challenge for us and perhaps for you even in our brief time together is seeing how difficult it sometimes is just to be with say the breathing just the way it is for in bringing my, a mindful awareness to the changing sensations of the breath we can experience every pattern and tendency of mind that plays itself out in the living of our everyday lives. If we are essentially patterned or wired, if our conditioning is to be controlling, we will, in this awareness of the breathing, see how difficult it is not to control the breath. We will see in this awareness how we want to ride the breath. 
we will see how it is that that even in the most subtle way there will be this impulse perhaps to script the breath we may have read somewhere that a real deep relaxing breath is a really good way to breathe and so when we bring ourselves to the breath we will have the script we will try and mentor our breath into a real deep relaxing breath because that's the good way to breathe I remember for me I read once in the early years of my practice that before entering the jhana states which are these apparently high states of concentration that are available to all of us that the breath gets very subtle almost indistinct and I remember I spent months trying to make my breath really subtle and indistinct I almost killed myself in the process but it's a revelation to see how just in relationship to this very simple coming and going of breath you know there is nothing more fundamental it's really the the breath is all about the life force when you focus on the breath we are focusing on the life force we begin life with our first breath and we end life with our last and how we bring ourselves to the experience of breathing really can be unutterably liberating or on the other hand as so many human beings do they live their entire lives without an awareness or an appreciation of what is ever present this coming in this going out this rhythm of life and so it's always there are just in visioning this talk felt like there were a couple of real sort of critical important areas in my experience that I found over the years that are, that are helpful in framing this exploration and the first has felt just the possibility of relating to the body as a verb to really have a relationship that is deeply foundationed in the essential nature of this physical body which is that it is changing moment to moment to moment I don't know what the specifics are but I know that every cell in the body changes every seven days or twelve days or every seven years so every seven years so we are utterly and completely not the same person the same body that we were seven years ago and in the course of meditation we must at junctures at various junctures in the past have the experience of the body as an organism in constant dynamic ever-present change and evolution and it's no esoteric thing it's actually just the truth of what the body is available to us when the mind settles when the mind is a little still perhaps you've had a sense of that today how there can be the beginning of an in-breath and the life of an in-breath and its conclusion and then the rising and passing away of the out-breath and then the next in-breath can be almost indistinguishable from the last one but there can be subtle differences there can be an awareness of the changing sensations within the in-breath as it comes and goes and does that that experience of change what the Buddha called anicca 
of impermanence is more and more deeply inculcated within our understanding not as a belief but in our understanding our faith deepens in our experience knowing that this body is indeed a verb and there ultimately is nothing associated with this body that is dependable and when we pull the rug out from under every notion that this body is going to live forever that it is fundamentally dependable not that it's bad but anything that is dependable implies that it is fixed and that there is nothing fixed and unchanging in the body when we pull that rug out once and for all our relationship with the body is transformed we are bringing ourselves to the body as it is not how we would like it to be you know if we think of those guys on the beach in Waikiki if we think back in our own lives at that time remember how it was when we thought that we were absolutely superman and superwoman that we would last forever that nothing could touch us that our bodies were so strong you know the beautiful poignant arrogance of the of the young and then as we get older there's the gradual or perhaps sudden dissolution of these notions that the body is going to remain this way forever and depending on our foundation what our relationship is with the body we either struggle more or less with the truth of the body as they as it reveals itself moment to moment in the early years of my meditation practice I uh, ordained as a monk at a monastery a Burmese monastery and we did this practice on the 32 parts of the body and it was a real simple practice and you may want to experiment with it at home sometime where every day we would we would focus on a different part of the body just the hair of the head and there would be almost like an awareness of the hair and and the awareness included a willingness to feel any sensations and then we would be hair of the head and then we'd include hair of the body and then there would be an awareness of both the hair of the head and the body and then we would go to the nails and just be an awareness of the nails the hair of the head, hair of the body, nails and then the teeth and then the skin and we would go through the various fluids of the body and eventually what began to happen was as the bodies were experienced as all these different parts interrelated, interconnected experienced not thought about slowly, slowly, imperceptibly not by will but by understanding there began to be a dissolution of this notion that this body was some fixed immutable object that it was really something uh, much more about parts interconnected intimate with each other in constant change and slowly over the course of months and months every sense of the body as being whole and coherent completely disintegrated and the whole organism was experienced as sensations shifting and changing moment to moment and if there was any sense of who I was in relationship to this body it was that who perhaps I felt I am who I am is the change who I am is the evolution who I am is the continuum and it was scary because as human beings we we have 
a deep investment in this body and identification but there also must be a sense of relief because we are bringing ourselves to the experience of what is true rather than the idea of what we would like the body to be. I love that statement of Christ where he says what we bring forth from within us will save us and what we don't bring forth will destroy us. And I think the degree and extent to which we bring forth the truths of this body and then live and embody those truths is the extent to which we incline our footfalls in the direction of a freedom that is eminently possible and always available. And given that the vision of the spiritual life, this, the, the journey of transformation of certainly the meditation that is offered here is one of unutterable inclusiveness. That in the living of these embodied lives there is no part that is left outside. It's not like 300 degrees of life will be included in the journey and 60% will be sidestepped. It's like everything including our experience of the body. And so it feels important to acknowledge also that in the living of our embodied sensual and sexual lives that there be a willingness and a capacity to bring that experience also into the heart of, 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 of the, the journey, into this field of, of aware, accepting presence. So that in whatever way life is lived, it is lived consciously, including sexually, where there is no split and division between religious and eros, if we speak mythologically. That the spiritual journey, the journey of sexuality, every facet of living in a human body is invited into this field of spacious, alert, aware presence. Hafiz, the wonderful Sufi poet of the 14th century, envisions this life of embodiment. I feel so beautifully in this poem where he says there are so many positions of love. Each curve on a branch, the thousand different ways your eyes can embrace us, the infinite shapes your mind can draw, the spring orchestra of sense, the currents of light combusting like passionate lips, the revolution of existence's skirt whose folds contain other worlds, your every sigh that falls against the inconceivable omnipresent body of God. Really coming home to our bodies our bodies is a verb. And for me unquestionably this siren call to coming home to the body has also included a call to a kind of humility in this relationship where I feel I and others I know have been deeply challenged in our capacity to bring a don't know mind 
to the experience of living in the human body. We in this age perhaps more than any other are surrounded by all of the authorities on the bodies. There are the doctors and the specialists of course with all of the information that they have who are in a position and are able and willing to offer so much information and then of course there are the body workers and the acupuncturists and the, the homeopaths and the naturopaths and there's a huge body of expertise out there. And so along with all the information that comes, is there at the same time a capacity to really not know? It's like when the blood work happens, can we bring in all those figures and not be defined by them, but be willing to hold that information and still be willing to not know. With the prognoses and the diagnoses and whatever the circumstances are that we find ourselves in the unfolding of our lives and at one time or another this is going to happen, of course, I'm sure, for all of us. Is there this capacity to, to suspend disbelief and to suspend belief where we're not closed to information, that we take it in and at the same time ultimately come home to a place in ourselves where we both allow all this information to reverberate and echo within us and then listen deeply and come to an understanding that is intuitively true for us that is inclusive of everything but is not defined by anything that we hear from outside of ourselves. Kabir, the wonderful Sufi poet, points to this. He says, are you looking for me? You know, the search of wanting to find the answers outside of ourselves. He says, I am in the next seat. He says, my shoulder is against yours. You'll not find me in stupors, not in an Indian shrine, nor in synagogues, nor in cathedrals. He says, you'll not find me in masses, nor kirtans, nor in legs winding around your own neck, nor in eating nothing but vegetables. When you really look for me, he says, you will see me instantly. You will find me in the tiniest house of time, what is God? He asks and he says, it is the breath inside the breath. And so how is it that we have this humility in relationship to the body to look in what he calls the tiniest house of in time? Certainly it's been my experiences in various cycles of my life and I've learned so much about humility in this process that there are times when there's this thirsting for a savior, for someone to save us in the various predicaments that we find ourselves in bodily. And whenever it is that we're looking for a savior, we are entering a landscape where there must be a victim, where there must be a perpetrator, where there must be a rescuer. And in the smorgasbord of possibilities and expertise and information that surrounds us, it's so easy to feel, to feel a victim. And I'm not for one moment suggesting that we close ourselves 
to the information that surrounds us. It feels like along with taking in the information that is there, not in this hope to be rescued, but that we bring it into that particular place within us. And this is a personal journey. This is part of a flowering that is so fiercely individual that there is that place, that capacity that opens where we bring all the information and then we're willing to wait. We're willing to listen. It takes a lot of humility. And there does come, there must come eventually a kind of knowing of that particular way that is true for us. Not scripted by circumstance or information around us, but that it is a knowing that is true, that is trustworthy. And it feels like it's, it must be the flowering, the fruition of coming home to the human body where we open to all the possibilities of support and then listen and wait. And for me this feels like the essence of meditation. You know, can we bring ourselves to a particular sensation in the body as it arises and just be there? So easy, perhaps you've seen this for the mind to begin its embroidery. It's almost like there can be a sensation and before we know it, it's like this is really painful, this is the same thing that happened last year or this is what happened to my friend and she ended up in a wheelchair and I better start moving and before we know it, we've removed ourselves so many times from the bare experience of what it is that is going on. And if we can bring ourselves in an ever deeper way just to the experience of events as they appear and disappear in the body without necessarily scripting them and, and interpreting them, sometimes there's a whole body of information that, that can come forward, that can serve us, that can support us. And we must at some point in this relationship with the body feel the stirring to move beyond so many of the labels that we carry. For me, I, uh, when I was diagnosed with AIDS in 1989, at that point I'd lost over 50 friends to this virus. And the moment when I was told that I was now living with this virus always, a number of things happened inside of me. The first thing that happened was that there was just this fierce resolve that I would not be defined by this virus. We need to close some windows. Please feel free to close windows. Sure. 
I invite you just as we sit here together, just just come home. If it feels comfortable, a little more deeply into the body, just feel what's happening right here, right now. coming home in the body. When I was diagnosed, as I was saying, I just felt so stirred. There was almost this, this fierce resolve in me that I would not be scripted by the lives of all the friends that had died before me. Some of the circumstances of their dying were dreadful and I was an intimate part of many of their processes. And I just resolved as best I could not as some heroic hero, but that I just wanted to find my own particular way with the circumstances that I found myself in. And that I would not be scripted, I would not have an infrastructure of the experiences of others through which whatever the possibilities of my life would be for however long I was meant to live, that flowering would not happen within a gridlock of me dragging into the present moment the experiences of those that had gone before. Not because I loved them any less, but because I felt like I was living and they were no longer here. And I wanted to live the best and the fullest life possible, given that I had the privilege of human life. And one of the things I saw that was most fundamentally important for me, and of course all these suggestions and words are all about uh, just offerings, just offerings. We each find our own way and for me it felt so important to move beyond the label of a person living with AIDS. It was so easy to kind of hide behind that banner and to wave that flag with all the feelings and emotions that were coming and going at that time. And so for me it felt critical to, to to bring myself to this experience beyond the label. And I did a number of retreats at that time that were very difficult. But again and again, I just tried to bring myself to an experience of the sensations and to see that most fundamentally, most fundamentally, even though the word AIDS with all the fear, with all the projection, with all the terror associated with it, that in my experience it was just about sensations, it was just about heat, it was just about events happening and disappearing in the body and that I was most fundamentally not a person with AIDS and that AIDS was just another word on an experience 
that was scary. And so what I did was I decided to give the virus a different name. I decided to call the virus SIPO. And every morning when I woke up in bed, the first thing I did was I checked in with SIPO. It felt critical that I bring myself into relationship with the virus because I saw the tendency of mine to push it away. I hate this thing, it's creating so many problems. It's the worst thing that could have happened. It killed all my friends, now it's going to kill me. People at that point were so terrified. You know, we were marginalized, we were peripheralized. People wouldn't touch us or kiss us or hug us. It was a terrible time. And so every morning I would wake up and I would check in with Sipo. I called him Sipo, which is a, a Zulu name that I love a lot. So the virus was Sipo. And I would say to Sipo, okay, we're in this together. You live, I live. I die, you die. So how are we going to do our dance today? And then I would check in and say, you know, what can we do today? How does it feel like? And while it feels contrived and it feels a little new agey as I say it right now, for me it was a critical corridor to coming into relationship with this particular circumstance of my life really helped in that ritual every day of realizing that this was almost like a partnership, that we were in this together and it wasn't me against the virus. There wasn't a war going on inside of me. It was uh, uh, really important personally. And so this question of intimately coming into relationship with the physical circumstances of our lives feels critical. You know how uh, a couple of weeks ago, a number of months ago, I was dancing and I was a little bit too wild and I hurt my knees. And so for two months now, you know, I go up and down. I'm sitting on this cushion and also hurt my wrists. And it's so easy to marginalize parts of our body when they're not behaving the way we'd like them to. Have you experienced that? So it's almost like, it's like, it's almost like there's my body and then there's this, this, this damn thumb, you know, that's causing all the problems. And it's almost like, can the relationship with this particular part of my body be such where there's no way in which it is marginalized? That life is not fragmented, bodily life is not fragmented. And that when something is ailing, when something is hurting, that it's actually embraced into the, the living experience of this human body, sensation by sensation, so that there's no sense of sending it into some sort of solitary confinement until it starts to behave itself properly. We all know how it feels to be in solitary confinement. And so the, for me the practice of, of just bringing myself to the sensations of events, you know how it is like if you slam yourself and you hurt yourself, so often the first thought is, damn, it's like I hate that, it's like pushing it away, you know. Can the response be, oh, we are beloved, you know, bring it in and just you know, utterly come into the deepest possible communion with the event. It's so, so, so critical, so important. And then for me, the issue of bringing love to the body is like the bottom line. 
you know, in the Buddha's teaching, there was no distinction made between the human emotional heart and the human mind. The word Hajyavatu in Pali or Sanskrit is often translated as heart-mind. And so from the teaching, from the perspective of the teachings, there's no heart that loves and mind that knows or is conscious. That the heart-mind, the Hajyavatu is one of the same things and that ultimately the experience of awareness, the mindfulness that I've evoked and pointed to in the meditation, ultimately is experienced as love. That the love that I bring to you is indivisible from the fact of my complete wholehearted presence, my presence, my awareness with you, the wholeheartedness is the deepest expression of love. And so can the question is, can we bring this kind of love to our bodily experience? The Buddha said in what for me is one of the most beautiful spiritual metaphors I've ever heard, he said, this loving kindness, he said, is like a gentle rain that falls on everything without distinction. Loving kindness is like a gentle rain that falls on everything without distinction. Can we bring, can we allow that rain to fall on every part of ourselves and on one another without distinction? It's really difficult. And I think it's particularly difficult for those of us in the West. His Holiness the Dalai Lama at a talk a number of years ago with teachers of Western teachers of meditation, he told us that he felt that the single greatest impediment to flowering, to freedom in the West was the pervasive self-hatred with which in his experience almost everybody lived with. He said Westerners live with a degree of inner crucifixion and self-hatred. He said that is undermining the very thing that they yearn for so much. He said there's such a thirst for awakening, for transformation in the West. And he said largely and significantly, he said, the degree of conflict within people, the amount of lack of love is the thing more than anything else that, that is the obstacle. And so he said our primary work, he felt, was to, to address the self-hatred. And in relationship to our bodies, we can often be so unforgiving. In our willingness to be unconscious in the living of our bodies, I just want to invite you just for a moment, just to come back to the body together, just, just to feel where we are right now in the body. Beautiful. that so often we can move away from the circumstances of our body in fear and override the messages that are so, so available to us. We have ideas about how we should look and we look in the mirror and we hate ourselves. We have an idea about how our heart should function and our heart for the moment is sore or our heart is ailing and we ignore it. Loving kindness is like a gentle rain that falls on everything 
without exaction. So in living these embodied lives that we do, is there a flowering capacity to bring ourselves to our aging, say, for example, with a kindness and an acceptance born of our capacity to bring ourselves, say, in meditation or whatever our spiritual practice, to the fact that these are organisms that are changing, that are growing old moment to moment, and that certainly the day will come when we will die. And can that somehow bring ourselves to the cycles of our life, to, for women perhaps, and of course I don't know, to the, to the cycle of menopause, which I, I know is terrible. I have friends going through, through, through that and have gone through it. But can there be a way of bringing ourselves to this where we are not scripted by the fears and the stories of others and where we can be deeply responsive and available to the messages that are there and that must come. Not that it's about right or wrong and never that we're doing it badly, but are we available to the process as it manifests moment to moment? And it's so easily to be judgmental of ourselves. So many of us carry the script that if the body is perhaps not working as we'd like it to be and all our efforts to address it are not triumphant, that we've done something wrong and that we failed. We can be so harsh and unforgiving when it comes to the body. Oh. I have to have these because there are just certain things that are really important not to forget. And so there we, there, there we have it. This vision of a life lived inclusive of everything. Hafiz is such a master of inclusiveness. For me, he's just such a stirring reminder at those times when I feel fragmented of the vision of wholeness. He says, it happens all the time in heaven. And someday it will begin to happen again on earth. The men and women who are married, and men and men who are lovers, and women and women who give each other light, often will get down on their knees, and while so tenderly holding their lover's hand, with tears in their eyes, will sincerely speak saying, my dear, how can I be more loving to you? How can I be more kind? How can I be more loving? How can I be more kind? And so when something goes wrong, we don't banish any part of our bodies. That impulse is no longer even a felt possibility. That the first response is, I care. I care. There were times, there have been times in my life when the body's been really ailing. And all I would do is I'd just touch it and say, I care. And just feel the sensations, feel the heat, feel the tingling, feel the throbbing. And just, I care, I care, I care. There's this wonderful mystic, uh, Simeon, 
who lived in Greece uh, <clears throat> early Christian mystic he was called Simeon the New Theologian and he pointed to this he said we awaken in Christ's body as Christ awakens our bodies and my poor hand is Christ he enters my foot and is infinitely me I move my hand and wonderfully my hand becomes Christ becomes all of him I move my foot and at once he appears like a flash of lightning if we genuinely love him we wake up in Christ's body where all our body all over every most hidden part of it is realized in joy as him and he makes us utterly real and everything that is hurt everything that seemed to us dark harsh shameful maimed ugly irreparably damaged is in him transformed and recognized as whole as lovely and radiant in his light we awaken as the beloved in every last part of our body coming home to the body with love and lastly I'm almost at the end here but it feels critical to evoke what feels like perhaps the most important landscape and that's the landscape embodied in the question in the end the bottom line is who am I in relationship to this body what is this body and what isn't this body and who am I in relationship to what it is and this is where we move more from the relative and all these words to the world of the absolute in biblical terms we move from the horizontal the, the human the lateral to the vertical to the divine and I'd like to do this maybe just comes more as an experience together so I invite you once again just if it feels comfortable to, to come back into the body and maybe just lift whichever arm feels comfortable and just slowly with the eyes closed experience the sensations in the arm as it moves there might be feelings of temperature maybe or tingling of pulling just having a spaciousness into which the sensations come and in the experiencing of these sensations we together move more into the absolute from the words into the experience whether there is no elbow there is just sensation perhaps there's a sense too that there's no wrist there's no fingers as the arm moves as the sensations come and go and from this perspective as we move this awareness maybe now to include our face from an absolute perspective there are no wrinkles there's no gray beard there's just sensations coming and going 
appearing and disappearing, energy. There's no male, there's no female, blonde, no brunette. We're not fat, we just thin, or we're not thin, we just the way we are. Just the way we are. There's no fighting, there's no washing things to be different. experience of the body as it is, as an energy field of energy arising and passing away, the question must on that landscape be, then who am I? Who is the body? Just resting there. And perhaps there's a sense with this perspective and in this perspective that we are not our T-cells, that we are not our malignancy, we are not our chronic fatigue, we are not our wrists, our knees, our arms. We're not our blood pressure or our glucose level. Just phenomena arising, passing away. We're just the continuum, the change. The awareness. This is what the Buddha called anatta, the experience of emptiness. Right here, right now, together, after all the words, the emptiness. And from this perspective, we can no longer be in the boxes. We move beyond the labels of man, woman, young, old, sick, well, cancer survivor, AIDS sufferer. And we point to an experience of life that St. Teresa of Avil, one of our great ancestors, he said, Christ had nobody now on earth but yours. No hands but yours, no feet but yours. Yours are the eyes through which God's compassion looks out to the world and yours are the feet with which he is to go about doing good and yours are the hands with which he blesses women and men right now. Not mind, body, just the body that we all share right here, right now, together.
just enclosing, resting in the body. No agenda, no scripting, just the way it is, if possible, moment to moment. The ear hears, sensations come and go, the eye sees, the nose smells, the tongue tastes, E.E. Cummings points to such embodied joy for me, perhaps for you too, in this triumphant poem where he says, I thank you God for most this amazing day, for the leaping greenly spirits of trees and a blue true dream of sky and for everything which is natural, which is infinite, which is yes. I who have died am alive again today and this is the sun's birthday. This is the birthday of life, of love and swings and of the gay great happening illimitably earth. Now the ears of my ears awake and now the eyes of my eyes are opened.